Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 20. In the last chapter, we saw a fairly major riot taking place as a result of the growth and influence of the gospel. Christianity did not sit easy in the pagan world. It challenged absolutely everything that it came into contact with. It turned the Roman world upside down. And in chapter 19, we saw that world pushing back a little bit. Thankfully, some cooler heads prevailed and things began to settle down. The story continues in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Let me just pause here and pull back the curtain a little bit. Luke told us in the last chapter that Paul intended to pass through Macedonia and Achaia in order to strengthen the churches before heading back to Jerusalem, hopefully in time for Pentecost. He sent Timothy and Erastus on ahead of him to prepare the churches for his arrival. We know from 2 Corinthians that part of what they were supposed to do was prepare the churches to participate in the Jerusalem offering. However, it was also at this time that things were falling apart in Corinth in terms of Paul's relationship with that church. Paul wrote a letter that scholars refer to as the severe letter to try and right the ship and get things back on a a proper footing. And he sent it by the hand of Titus. He wanted Titus to inform him whether or not that relationship had been restored to the point that another visit by Paul at this time would be helpful. So all of that is on his mind as he's walking down to the harbor to take ship for Macedonia. He's just survived a riot in one town, and now he's heading towards a potential mutiny in another. Out of the frying pan and into the fire, as grandma used to say. That was life for this brother. Church planting is not for the faint of heart. We pick up the story again in verse 2. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Again, Luke doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know here, but we can patch it together from what Paul says in his letters. Apparently, Titus had been able to more or less smooth things over in Corinth. Uh, When Luke tells us that Paul came to Greece, having gone through Macedonia, we know that means that Paul came to Corinth in Greece, and he stayed there for three months, and from there wrote his epistle to the Romans. But Luke doesn't tell us that either. He just says in verse 3, There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So instead of just sailing there, he goes back up north, sets out from a different port. Verse 4. Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. This fairly long list of people represents the group of delegates that were assigned by the various churches to accompany the Jerusalem 
offering. Paul insisted on this. He didn't want even a hint of suspicion around his financial dealings, and I think there's great wisdom there. Pastors and church planters should avoid handling money at all costs. We need to be above reproach with respect to our financial dealings. And so Paul insisted that these delegates travel with him to oversee the handing off of the money to the elders in Jerusalem. Now Paul sends the delegates out of Corinth via one port while he himself travels north into Macedonia, as I mentioned, and sets sail from there. He obviously did this to avoid some mischief makers who were intending to intercept him, delay him, cause him trouble. From Macedonian ports uh, in Philippi, he set sail and was able to join up with the others in Troas on the northwest corner of Asia Minor, where, according to Luke, they all stayed for seven days. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This little story is significant for a variety of reasons, but chief among them is the fact that it represents very early witness to the Christian practice of meeting for worship on the first day of the week. Luke says that they met on the first day of the week to break bread. I. Howard Marshall says here, The breaking of bread is the term used especially in Acts for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And this passage is of particular interest in providing the first allusion to the Christian custom of meeting on the first day of the week for the purpose. Now, we should probably remember that Jews generally reckon days as going from sundown to sundown, as opposed to sunup to sunup, as we might do. So their Sunday started on what we might call Saturday night. So it is very probable that this church service started at 7 or 8 p.m. on, again, what we would call Saturday night, what they would think of as early Sunday. And it appears that Paul preached a rather lengthy sermon, passing over into midnight, which caused this young man, Eutychus, to fall asleep, whereupon he fell out of a third-story window and was killed. Luke says that he was taken up dead, and that only after Paul went and bent over him was there life in him. So the common sense meaning of those words suggests that Luke is communicating some kind of a resurrection as opposed to just a resuscitation. This was a significant miracle, and it brought great comfort to the church. Verse 13, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So once again, the company splits up. Luke doesn't tell us why this time. It may again have had to do with various plots and intentions to disrupt Paul's travel. For whatever reason, some sail for Asos and some head out overland towards the same destination. Verse 14, And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, 
And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. You will remember that Paul spent nearly three years in Ephesus, and he obviously developed a great affection for the people there. As any pastor knows, if you're in a hurry, you better not go through the lobby. You're going to get stopped, and you're going to be engaged in lengthy conversation. Paul is eager to get to Jerusalem on time for the festival, and he is now running behind schedule. So he bypasses the city itself, and then from the other side, summons the elders and leaders to him so that he can say a proper goodbye. It's a very touching scene. Luke says in verse 18, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders is a gold mine for pastors, leaders, and lay people alike. Paul begins by defending his own ministry. He says that he did not shrink from teaching anything that was profitable, whether publicly or privately. He preached the whole counsel of God towards the end of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Having done so, Paul declares himself innocent of the blood of all. He's referring there to Ezekiel 33. In that passage, the Lord tells Ezekiel that he is a watchman over the house of Israel. He says, so you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning for me. If I say to the wicked, 
O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Paul says that he's innocent because he has told people the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of God. He hasn't wimped out. He hasn't edited. He hasn't shaved off the edges. He didn't care about his own popularity. He didn't care about tickling ears. He had been given a job to do by God Almighty, and by the grace of God, he had done it. He had preached the whole counsel of God, and now it's up to them how they respond. Every preacher of the gospel, every person who dares to step into a pulpit and to stand before a people and to present themselves as a teacher of divine truth would do very well to pay attention to Paul's example. Paul tells them that he loved them enough to tell them the truth, but he warns them that not everyone who follows him will do the same. Fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, some even from among you. Now, just stop and hear that, friends. Christians today can be very naive. We simply assume that if someone says he's a Christian, then he is. If someone says he's a pastor, then he must be interested in the health and flourishing of the flock. But the Bible says that isn't so. The Bible says there's such a thing as a false teacher. The Bible says there's such a thing as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sometimes they're elders, pastors, or leaders in the church. Sometimes they're bloggers, writers, or celebrity speakers. That's why we have to pay attention. That's why we have to test the spirits. That's why we have to be discerning. And that's why you should read through the Bible cover to cover every year. Because if you do that, then you will know who is telling you the truth, who's telling you the whole counsel of God, and who is selling death and poison by the pound. That's your job. You are on the hook for knowing who is telling you the truth and who is leading you down the garden path. Paul has a clean conscience. He has loved and taught them well. Now, just before we leave this passage, we should also note that in the New Testament, the terms elder, pastor, and bishop are used in an interchangeable way, suggesting that they were basically overlapping terms describing the same initial office in the church. Luke tells us that Paul was meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus, but then in verse 28, Paul refers to them as overseers, using the Greek word episkopos, which is often translated as bishop. So elders were pastors of the sheep and bishops of the church. In the first generation, those words all meant the same thing. Notice also that there was a a group of them, a group of elders, a group of pastors, a group of bishops. Notice also that Paul says inevitably, some of them would prove false. Bad leaders do not invalidate the claims of Christ. You need to know that. Bad leaders simply prove that the devil is still in the game. Where God is at work, the devil is also at work, sowing false seed alongside the good. Therefore, be on guard. Luke concludes his narrative of this moving encounter in verses 36 to 38. He says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. 
Paul was no impersonal theologian, no sage on the stage. He was personally invested in this church. He knew them, he loved them, and he wanted to see them persevere. So he taught them thoroughly, and he warned them honestly. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 